This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. It was a quiet evening in the Caribbean port city of Port-au-Prince, Tall ships were anchored off the shore, while people in town celebrated the holy day of Pentecost, gathering at churches or feasting at home with their families. The peacefulness broke at a quarter past seven, when a loud roar came from the distance. Some curious revelers ventured outside to see what was going on. Then, the earth under them began to pitch and roll. Within seconds, walls started to crack, Roofs collapsed. There was nowhere to hide. Soldiers were buried in their barracks. Buildings and hospitals crumbled in an instant. The ground near the shore turned to liquid, and entire communities disappeared below the surface. The shaking lasted for an agonizing three minutes. The magnitude 7.5 earthquake had laid waste to the prosperous city. When daylight broke the next morning, The only identifiable landmarks were the trees that lined the streets. Not a single building was left standing. In total, over 200 people were killed. Unfortunately, the Haiti earthquake of June 3, 1770, would be forgotten in time. 200 years later, another quake struck Port-au-Prince, and this one killed over 200,000. Welcome to Natural Disasters, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm Tim. Every Monday, we'll explore the moments in history when the natural world turned deadly. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Natural Disasters for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. 
This is our first of two episodes on the 2010 Haiti earthquake, an event that killed up to 316,000 people, left over one million homeless, and destroyed tens of thousands of structures. It was one of the most devastating natural disasters in the past century. This week, we'll look at the science behind earthquakes, the history of Haiti, and some of the political factors that left it susceptible to nature's forces. Next week, we'll cover the earthquake as it happened and how the international community reacted. We'll hear about Haiti's recovery efforts and if they're any more prepared today than they were a decade ago. It was the start of a new year and a new decade in Haiti. There was quiet optimism on the streets of Port-au-Prince. 2010 might finally be the year where things were different. Haiti sits on the western third of the island of Hispaniola, 700 miles southeast of Florida. There were nearly one million people living in the cramped capital city, with a million more in the larger metropolitan area. The landscape was dotted with colorful houses that stretched from the western coast all the way up to the steep hills in the east. But despite the gorgeous views looking out toward the Caribbean Ocean, life in Port-au-Prince was hard. Running water and electricity weren't guaranteed, and about 80% of residents were living under the poverty line. Their hope came in the face of the reality that they were living in the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. But it hadn't always been this way. Port-au-Prince was once the heart of the most prosperous colony in the Caribbean. The French officially settled the western third of Hispaniola in 1697. When it was a French colony, Port-au-Prince was a hub for trade in the region. The island was even called the Pearl of the Caribbean. At the time, Haiti produced 60% of the world's coffee and 40% of France and Britain's sugar. But the profits came at a price. The French exploited the land. They cut down large swaths of forest to create plantations to keep up with the demand. The western third of Hispaniola, controlled by the French, was significantly drier than the eastern side, which was controlled by the Spanish. This made it much more difficult for trees to grow back once they'd been chopped down to clear land. To make things worse, these plantations practiced monocropping, where one crop is planted on the same plot of land year after year. The effects of single-crop farming are devastating to the environment. In the short term, it made the French incredibly wealthy, but it robbed the soil of the nutrients it needed to be sustainable in the future. French prosperity didn't only come at the expense of the land. They also imported nearly 40,000 slaves a year to keep up with demand for labor. In total, over 500,000 people were enslaved and sent to Hispaniola by the French. The French plantation owners were brutal and would often make examples of slaves who were causing problems. One former slave said he had seen men drowned in cauldrons of boiling cane syrup or thrown down hills inside barrels filled with spikes. The slaves worked in such adverse conditions that they were only expected to live to the age of 21. This level of oppression could only last so long. On the stormy night of August 21st, 1791, a revolution began. Hundreds of slaves rose up and killed their masters while they slept. 
It started a brutal war that lasted until 1804, when Haiti was finally granted its freedom from the French. However, the fledgling country struggled to find its footing. Other nations, like the United States, refused to recognize Haiti as a country and refused to trade with the island nation. U.S. policymakers were afraid that the interaction with Haiti would lead to a similar slave revolt in the South. Things got even worse for Haiti in 1825, when French warships appeared off the coast of Port-au-Prince. They had come back demanding reparations for lost property during the war. This was a bold move from the losing party, but it was bound to work. France threatened to attack Port-au-Prince if they weren't paid in full, and Haiti didn't have the military manpower to stop them. The Haitian government had no choice but to agree to pay back the modern-day equivalent of $21 billion. Haiti's economy never stood a chance. The lack of trade and crippling debt created an insurmountable hill for them to climb. From the very beginning of their independence, they were the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. By 2010, all that remained of the French legacy was the abject poverty that most Haitians lived in. Times were hard. The unemployment rate was at 40 percent, and those that could find work earned a minimum wage of only 70 gourds, or $1.75 a day. In May 2009, Parliament had agreed to raise the minimum wage to $5 a day. But, as was often the case, it had been months and no action had been taken. Nearly 40 percent of the country's budget came from foreign aid. But no amount of aid could undo a century of economic oppression from the international community. Not to mention the land mismanagement by the French that left 98 percent of Haiti deforested. Haiti also had a fast-growing population, and nowhere was this more evident than in Port-au-Prince. Over the past two decades, hundreds of thousands of rural Haitians had arrived in the port city when agricultural jobs dried up. But they soon discovered that jobs were hard to come by in the city, too. Most Haitians earned their income simply by bartering their old goods. Mothers traded old baby clothes that their children had grown out of or tried to sell furniture they no longer used. Times were so dire that if both parents worked minimum wage jobs, they would only be able to afford one hot meal a day for the entire family. A family of four would typically be able to afford to send one of their children to school. With the overpopulation and underemployment, housing was a massive problem in Port-au-Prince. Since most residents couldn't afford to rent or buy a home, they resorted to building their own piecemeal on unoccupied plots of land. Shanty towns dotted the landscape. Most of them were built on the barren hillsides and ravines on the east side of town. Residents used whatever materials they could find to build their homes. Tarps, tents, and if they were lucky, a spare piece of corrugated tin for a roof. These unsteady shelters were their only protection against the elements. From April through October of every year, they would have to weather the rainy season. Every year, storms blew through with winds that could reach well over 100 miles per hour, enough to level most shantytowns. Haiti is located in the middle of the Hurricane Belt, a section of the Caribbean where hurricanes are harsh and frequent. This is because of the warm waters in the Atlantic Ocean. Meteorologist Jeff Masters calls hurricanes heat engines. 
He told National Geographic, They take heat from the oceans and convert it to the energy of their winds. They're taking thermal energy and making mechanical energy out of it. This means that the warmer the waters, the more powerful the hurricanes. And the waters are at their warmest during the summer and fall, the same period where storms are the most frequent in Haiti. Most Haitians knew how to tell when the storms were coming, but there was little they could do to prepare their makeshift homes for the destruction. The government would open up temporary shelters in the tent cities, but space was limited. And even if the people themselves were safe, their homes and possessions were left to the elements. Losing everything year after year kept them locked in an unmanageable cycle of poverty. Even during smaller storms, the rain often flooded parts of the island. The topsoil was so weak from deforestation that the smallest amounts of rain could wash it away. And when the earth gave way, it created deadly mudslides that would come crashing down the steep slopes to the east of Port-au-Prince. These mudslides could reach speeds of over 20 miles per hour, carrying large boulders down with them. The mud and rocks would level anything in their way, including homes. The torrent of mud was often deadly, and it would take days to find bodies buried under the dirt. Even for the survivors, it would often be months before life could return to normal. Millions of dollars were spent on cleanup every time a large storm came through. But the infrastructure in Haiti was too inadequate for any relief efforts to succeed. Many roads were already falling apart before the storms, and after the rains came, they were completely washed away. With no way to get to the affected areas, no amount of aid money could help. While Haitians were no strangers to natural disasters like hurricanes and mudslides, most didn't know that there was an even greater threat looming below. Next up, we'll hear about the science behind the looming threat. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. While the people of Haiti knew to be prepared for the hurricanes and tropical storms that came through every year, they were unaware that another, more serious threat was building up pressure just below their feet. Despite making it through the most recent hurricane season at the start of 2010, Haitians were in more danger now than ever. Each day was bringing them closer and closer to disaster. To understand the danger, we have to take a look at the geography of Haiti. The island of Hispaniola, like the rest of the islands in the Caribbean, was formed over millions of years as the Earth's crust moved. The crust is the topmost layer of the Earth and is made up of numerous tectonic plates. These plates rest on top of the Earth's molten mantle. In most cases, when islands are formed, it's the result of plates moving past one another, forcing magma up from the mantle and through the crust. Hispaniola is only one of several islands that make up a larger chain known as the Antilles. The largest of these islands is Cuba, which is only 50 miles northwest. Hispaniola is the second largest. 
Haiti shares the island with the Dominican Republic, which has control over the eastern two-thirds of Hispaniola. But while they share the same island, the climate and geography of the two nations are vastly different. The Dominican side of the island gets more rain and has more forests. Haiti's third is drier, rockier, and deforested. Hispaniola's varied geography is due in part to the fact that it's located on a small tectonic plate known as the Gonave microplate. A microplate is just a smaller version of the larger tectonic plates that make up the Earth's crust. Microplates are usually formed when they break off of the larger plates. In the case of the Gonave microplate, it broke off from the much larger Caribbean plate in the early Eocene period, about 50 million years ago. The Caribbean plate was slowly moving to the east over millions of years, and in the Eocene period, it finally collided with the Bahama Bank, a large deposit of hard limestone. While the majority of the Caribbean plate gradually kept moving east, a section of the plate was stopped by the limestone. The pressure built up over time, and the section that was stopped eventually broke off. This created the Ganav microplate, which continues to sit next to the Bahama Bank. This created a complex system of fault lines running through the Caribbean. One of those fault lines, the Septentrional Fault, runs a few miles off the coast of northern Haiti and curves back down into the Dominican Republic to the east. Meanwhile, the Enriquillo Plantain Garden Fault forms the microplate's southern boundary. It runs all the way from Jamaica through southern Hispaniola, right below Port-au-Prince. Earthquakes occur when two plates slide past one another but lock up, creating pressure on the fault line. When the tension becomes too much, the plates break along the fault, releasing a massive amount of energy that causes the earth to shake. There are three main types of faults. A normal fault, a reverse fault, and a slip-strike fault. Each of them behave very differently, but all can result in earthquakes. The Leogon Fault is a reverse fault, sometimes referred to as a thrust fault. This occurs when a section of one plate slips below another one. When they break apart, the top fault is thrust upward. The Enriquillo Plantain Garden is a slip-strike fault. This means that the two plates rub against each other laterally. The earthquake that leveled Port-au-Prince in 1770 came from the Enriquillo Plantain Garden Fault. That was the last large seismic event to happen in Haiti. By the 21st century, it had been over 200 years since that section of the fault slipped. This means that for two centuries, the plates around Port-au-Prince were slowly building up pressure. It would only be a matter of time before the earth moved again, and most Haitians had no idea of the danger they were in. However, the Haitian government did know about it. They had been given a very timely warning in 2008 from some concerned scientists in the United States. A group of five geologists from different universities were studying the faults around Hispaniola. Heading up the project was Paul Mann from the University of Texas, one of the leading experts on Caribbean geography. Mann was actually the one who named the Enriquillo Plantain Garden Fault in 1983. In 2008, Haiti didn't have seismic activity sensors of their own, so the research these five geologists did was of great importance. 
they discovered that the Caribbean plate had been moving a quarter of an inch per year in the opposite direction of the Ganav microplate. Instead of simply sliding past one another, these two plates had locked in such a way that it prevented small quakes from happening. These small quakes would have alleviated some pressure and would have been a constant reminder of the danger the island was in. Because of the pressure that was building, the scientists found that the fault running through Port-au-Prince was capable of producing an earthquake of up to 7.2 magnitude. Two months after publishing their findings, the scientists arrived in Haiti to discuss the grim prediction with government leaders. But they knew their words would only do so much. Mann told the Associated Press, Haiti's government has got so many other problems that when you give sort of an unspecific prediction about an earthquake threat, they just don't have the resources to deal with that sort of thing. The Haitian government already had their hands full with their day-to-day issues. While the government appreciated the information, what could they possibly do with it? They were already trying to handle a growing population, and unauthorized buildings were popping up all over Port-au-Prince. They didn't have enough time to enforce building codes on every single structure. Pierre Fouche, an earthquake engineer from Haiti, told NPR, many people are doing whatever they want. They can build whatever they want. One of the biggest problems is that we do not even have a national building code. Since there were no regulations and limited materials, most Haitians built their homes however they could. Due to the intense deforestation, Wood was hard to come by, so almost all of the permanent houses in Port-au-Prince were built with the much cheaper alternative, concrete. Most residents couldn't afford to reinforce their walls with rebar, which left the homes susceptible to disasters, seen and unseen. Because the walls were rigid and unreinforced, they couldn't withstand shaking. Instead of bowing and flexing like wood-framed houses, they would buckle and fall apart. And most Haitians had no way of knowing this. It had been nearly 200 years since the last major earthquake, so no one worried about how to prepare. And even if they had known, they would have had no way to afford the materials to make their houses safe. The makeshift homes they built for protection would lead to unforeseen destruction. President René Préval tried his best to keep his citizens safe, He was quiet and thoughtful and had been a stable leader since his second election in 2006. With a growing population and an already high unemployment rate, Preval's main focus was creating industry. He was working with the UN and private businesses to turn Haiti's fortunes around for good. New factories were being built in an industrial park in Port-au-Prince with the help of the UN, which appointed former U.S. President Bill Clinton as a special envoy in mid-2009. Clinton spearheaded an initiative to bring business to Haiti, using the new buildings to manufacture clothing and process goods. Their goal was to create year-round jobs that were less strenuous and steadier than manual labor. The U.S. took advantage of the situation by eliminating tariffs on Haitian imports. This allowed U.S. companies to make huge profits by moving their factories to Haiti, while also employing thousands of Haitians who were out of work. In a country with an unemployment rate of around 40 percent, these new enterprises could actually be enough to bring about change. Leaders in Haiti knew that if they wanted to keep the project going, they needed to prove they could be a sound investment. 
As 2010 dawned, there was hope on the streets of Port-au-Prince. This year could change everything for Haiti. On the afternoon of January 12th, 48-year-old Jens Christensen was sitting at his desk in his third-floor office at the Christopher Hotel, looking over documents for tomorrow's meeting. A little over a mile away from Port-au-Prince, the hotel was an odd location for the base camp of UN operations in Haiti, but it was one of the only buildings in the area large enough to accommodate them. Christensen was from Denmark and had been an aid worker for well over a decade. He started working for the UN as an advisor in Angola and most recently had come back from Liberia. The lanky Dane had been in Haiti since February 2005 and was now a senior humanitarian officer. He was working on the current peacekeeping mission and was passionate about helping those in need. He knew the danger he'd be in if an earthquake struck, but he never let it bother him. It was getting late, and Christensen was looking forward to heading home for the day. The clock on the wall read 4.53 p.m. Seconds later, he felt a very small jolt. He knew it was an earthquake. He had been in several all over the world. But this one was different. Four seconds after the initial jolt, the main shockwave reached him. He had never felt anything this powerful. He looked at the door. It was only a few feet away, but he didn't have time to get out. He dove under his desk as everything went tumbling around him. The bookshelf fell on top of the desk, trapping him in a small pocket of space. The shaking only lasted around 30 seconds, but it felt like an eternity. As Christensen laid there, he closed his eyes and hoped for the best. Then the walls gave way, and he was plunged into darkness. Up next, we'll hear about the earthquake as it happened and the immediate aftermath. Now back to the story. Christina Jolmet was taking her future into her own hands, attending classes at the State University of Haiti. She knew the value of an education. It was rare in Port-au-Prince, and it could completely change her life. More than that, she dreamed of changing her country. On January 12, 2010, she arrived to her Tuesday afternoon linguistics class and sat in her usual seat towards the back of the nearly full classroom. Her class was inside the main building on campus. It was seven stories tall and made entirely out of concrete. Shortly before 5 p.m., two tectonic plates slipped 15 miles southwest of the capital city. This caused a fault to rupture, sending the earth rumbling. Christina would never forget the next 35 seconds. She looked around the room. There was nothing any of her classmates could do. They just held on. The seven-story concrete building didn't stand a chance. Christina crouched beneath her tiny desk, and then the walls collapsed. Countless students around her were killed in an instant, but she was still alive, trapped under the debris. She could feel someone's leg, but they weren't moving. Only a few inches away, she saw her friend was trapped too. They called out for help, but no one was coming. In between their pleas, there was only a heavy silence. Christina wondered why more people weren't calling out with her. She didn't know that most of the other students in the room were already dead. When the earthquake hit, thousands of buildings came tumbling down with entire families still inside them. 
The concrete structures in Haiti weren't built to withstand such aggressive shaking. A few residents who could afford to have wooden roofs were spared, since wood was significantly less heavy and could actually flex with the Earth's movements. The houses made of concrete were much more rigid and began to crack. After only a few seconds, they reached their breaking point. Walls fell and roofs collapsed, landing on anyone who happened to be inside. The shaking was so intense that it destroyed the sturdiest structure in all of Port-au-Prince, the presidential palace. It had stood as a symbol of national resilience since it was completed in 1920. Through countless governments, coups, and revolutions, the palace remained. Until the afternoon of January 12th, when the three-story structure collapsed, killing an unknown number of people inside. When the shaking stopped, the city was enveloped by a low-hanging dust cloud caused by the thousands of collapsed buildings. Through the haze, the survivors couldn't believe what they were seeing. Their entire world was gone. Everything they had spent their lives building lay in ruins. Loved ones they had talked to only moments before were now buried beneath piles of concrete. The sense of hope they had for the future was replaced by pure anguish. As the dust settled, residents could take in the full scope of the damage. The majority of the buildings in Port-au-Prince had been damaged or destroyed. The roads were broken up and people were lying dead in the streets. Muffled cries for help came from the wreckage. After the shock wore off, People all over town immediately jumped into action, climbing over the rubble to look for any signs of life. It was a monumental task, and a nearly impossible one. Most of the people that had been trapped inside their homes were already dead. The concrete was heavy, with extremely jagged edges where it broke apart. Digging through the wreckage was dangerous, but local rescuers did their best. They couldn't let people die underneath their own homes. Countless people were pulled out from under the concrete, and rescuers tended to more who were already lying on the ground. Even those who'd managed to escape their homes had been injured by the collapsing walls. The injured survivors needed to get to a hospital. This wouldn't be an easy task, since many roads had been completely destroyed, and the rest were impassable because of the debris. And when they finally stumbled toward the hospital, they saw that their efforts were in vain. The hospitals were just as damaged as everything else, and some were completely turned to rubble. Masses of people gathered outside looking for help, but the hospitals were understaffed and now overrun. To make matters worse, power had gone out throughout the city. Even under the best of circumstances, the hospitals couldn't have handled this amount of demand. The doctors and nurses were dealing with something they had never imagined. They did what they could, treating the most serious injuries first. But it was hard to take stock of which patients were in the worst condition, since crush injuries often don't present themselves in an obvious way. With many crush injuries, there's no open wound. The majority of the bleeding occurs internally. Someone who may appear fine on the outside could have sustained massive amounts of trauma internally. They could be dying, and the overwhelmed doctors couldn't tell by just looking at them. Soon after the earthquake struck, it was getting dark, and the lack of power hampered the rescue efforts. 
As the sun went down, Port-au-Prince was completely shrouded in darkness. Throughout the night, word of the disaster spread to the rest of the world. But anyone who wasn't there in Haiti had no idea how bad the damage truly was. That evening, rescue efforts continued by moonlight. More people were saved, but even more bodies were discovered. By 6.30 p.m., it had only been 90 minutes since the shaking stopped, and Port-au-Prince was in chaos. The government response was slow because of the massive scale of the destruction. Most Haitians hoped they would be hearing from their president soon, but President Preval was nowhere to be found. The palace had collapsed, and many feared the worst. Back at the Christopher Hotel, Jens Christensen was doing his best to stay calm. The UN worker had been in his office when the quake struck. He used his quick thinking to hide under his desk. It had saved his life. But now he was trapped. He felt like he was in a coffin. The space was only five feet long, 12 inches high, and 18 inches wide. He could barely move, but he could tilt his neck from side to side. It was pitch black. It didn't matter if his eyes were open, it was all the same. He had his phone in his pocket, and after some maneuvering, he held it up by his face. He knew there wouldn't be any signal because the networks would be down, but the light let him survey his situation. He hoped he would see an opening, but no luck. All he could do was wait and remain as calm as possible. But the earth wasn't done shaking after the initial quake. In the past two hours, there had been a handful of aftershocks, the largest reaching a magnitude 5.9. Every time the building shook, the thoughts came racing back into his head. What if the rubble shifted and he was crushed? What if no one knew he was missing? What if he was never found? He knew he was lucky to have even survived. If his office had collapsed, it meant that some of his colleagues were probably dead. Christensen like all the others who were trapped, could only hope. Hope that someone knew he was missing and that he could be found in time. Thanks for listening to Natural Disasters. Next week, we'll follow the lives of the survivors immediately after the earthquake and the global relief efforts that promised to rebuild the country. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Natural Disasters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Natural Disasters on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Natural Disasters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Natural Disasters was written by Robert Tyler Walker, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Tim Johnson. Tim Johnson